0: Will you please turn with me in your Bibles once again to the Gospel according to Mark, where we are going to be looking together this morning at chapter 6, the first six verses. That's Mark chapter 6, verses 1 through 6, and you can find that passage on page 986 in your pew Bibles. As I've mentioned to you many times now in our consideration of this Gospel account Mark, the gospel according to Mark, really does serve as an excellent resource for getting very well grounded in the wonderful truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Like a master storyteller, Mark lays out for us here in very concise and a very direct form the awesome revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ. And his mission is for us to see him. To see him as he truly is. To see him with the eyes of faith. Mark employs many things here in this narrative towards that very purpose. For example, he's given us these continual contrasts that we have been looking at together for many weeks now. And they sort of force us to see Jesus as he is. And to see ourselves rightly then, considering that revelation. We have had contrasts such as the authority with which Jesus taught, held up against the teaching of the scribes and the Pharisees. One was very clearly far superior to the other. We see it as well in the comparison of the majestic power of Jesus that is on display here, compared to the weak, dim, flickering power of this world. We've considered the comparison of two very different effects upon those who actually heard the teaching of Jesus in parables. To one was opened the mysteries and the glory of the kingdom of God, while at the same time another was moved even further outside of the kingdom by what they heard blind eyes being unable to perceive what was only comprehended through God-given faith. We've also had manifested for us the result of the revelation of Jesus Christ bringing forth the revelation of the heinousness of sin itself. As more and more of His perfection becomes clear, the utter ruin and the imperfection of this broken world also become much clearer when it is witnessed in comparison with his altogether glorious light. We saw that with the evil of evil being made apparent as Jesus faced off with what Mark told us was in fact a legion of demons and their occupant. Last week we spent our time considering yet another comparison in these two desperate people, both running to Jesus for relief from the brokenness That is such a part of this life. We saw that they came from very different places in society. One was an important leader in the synagogue. He was a prominent man with a name, and Mark even gives to us his name. It's through Mark that we know that the man's name was Jairus. The other was just an ordinary woman suffering from a severe infirmity in the form of a 12-year-old hemorrhage. She is so insignificant as to not even merit a name being assigned to her in this account. And yet we find that ultimately their situations really are identical, aren't they? Two desperate people from opposite ends of the societal spectrum, both suffering under the result of the curse because of the fall of Adam, And both running to the only cure for what truly ails them. Jesus Christ the Lord and the giver of life. Distinctions between these two marred and disfigured image bearers. Fade away as they look to the image himself for relief and for restoration. Up to this point in Mark's account we can say that one of the things that comes out of all of these comparisons is the foundational truth that there really is no comparison at all, is there? Jesus Christ stands alone. And he stands far superior to all things. He is truly over all things. and I think Mark has made that point for us with spectacular clarity. Mark is all about the revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we saw very clearly so far in this narrative that nothing can stand in the way of his mission. Nothing will ultimately thwart the mission of the Lord Jesus Christ. His victory is certain. We saw that even death itself is subservient to it. And brothers and sisters in Christ, we truly ought to be praising God for it. In his mercy, he has come to make right what we ourselves have continued to make so wrong. He has indeed come to set us free from our bondage to sin and death. And when faith sees him, it rightly falls at his feet and worships. It leads one into a life of doxology, of praise. Another result gleaned from that comparison is the clarity that we get regarding this world and its state because of the fall. We saw in those people the brokenness of this world, a father watching his child die and being helpless to stop it. A woman suffering a condition, a condition that has made her an outcast in society that has kept her outside of formal worship. She has used up all her worldly possessions in search of a cure. All that she had proved to be insufficient to help. In fact, we are told in Mark, they only made her situation worse. This world is broken. We hear these stories and we say these things ought not to be. This world is broken because of sin and we certainly see it. It exists all around us. It exists even in our own lives. We saw something of the mission of Jesus because of it. He came for this. He came to set things right. He came to bear upon Himself the curse that we might have life in Him. He came for it. It's driving Him to do all that He's doing as He's driven closer and closer to the cross where the price will be paid in full, where He will finish that work completely. Finally, we glimpse something of the power of faith as it drives His church home to Him Even this broken world and all of its stuff will not get in the way of God-given faith. The power of faith and belief in Jesus Christ and His Word. And this morning we continue to see this unfold in Mark. Though this time he focuses in on another power in comparison that we must consider. And it's a worldly power. It's a power that when held up to the power of Christ that has already been on display here in Mark shows itself to be in fact no real power at all. It is the product of fallen reasoning, of fallen image bearers, those whose human reason allows for them to remain content in nothing at all. I'm talking about the power of unbelief. And Mark knows that if we are to fully comprehend the glory of the revelation of Jesus Christ to this world, then we must be well-schooled in just how truly desperate we are for that revelation. And so it's with that in mind that I would invite you to join me in following along in your Bibles as I read from the Gospel according to Mark, chapter 6, verses 1 through 6. Hear now the word of our Lord. Then he went out from there and came to his own country, and his disciples followed him. When the Sabbath had come, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many hearing him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What wisdom is this which is given to him, that such mighty works are performed by his hands? Is this not the carpenter? the son of Mary, the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? So they were offended at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his own country, among his own relatives, and in his own house. Now he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. Then he went about the villages in a circuit, teaching. This is the word of our Lord. May he always bless the reading of it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're grateful again for your word this morning. We pray that as we come to your word, that you would clear our hearts and our minds of the many, many things that distract us in this life. We ask, Father, that we would give our undivided attention to your word so that hearing it we may grow in grace and faith. We may live more and more through the power of your spirit for the glory of your name. And we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Well, as is often the case in the gospel according to Mark, Mark really gives us a very condensed version of what exactly transpired that day in this synagogue in Jesus' hometown of Nazareth. He focuses in on the fact that unbelief was the thing that was reigning among the very people who were so familiar with Jesus, the people Jesus grew up with. And perhaps for just a little more clarity here, we can look at this same event as it's recorded for us in Luke's account. So I want you to look with me real quickly here at Luke chapter 4, verses 16 through 30. We're talking about the same event Luke gives us a little bit more detail of what transpired that day in the synagogue. I'll pick up with 16 and read through 30. So he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on that Sabbath day and stood up to read. And he was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has appointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Then He closed the book and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all who were in the synagogue were fixed on Him. And He began to say to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. So all bore witness to him and marveled at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. And they said, is this not Joseph's son? He said to them, you will surely say this proverb to me. Physician, heal yourself. Whatever we have heard done in Capernaum, do also here in your own country. Then he said, assuredly, I say to you, a prophet is accepted I say to you, no prophet is accepted in his own country. But I tell you truly, many widows were in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up for three years and six months. And there was a great famine throughout all the land, but to none of them was Elijah sent, except to Zarephath in the region of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And many lepers were in Israel in the time of Elisha, the prophet, and none of them was cleansed except Naaman, the Syrian. So all those in the synagogue, when they heard these things, were filled with wrath. And they rose up and thrust him out of the city and led him to the brow of a hill on which their city was built, that they might throw him down over the cliff. Then, passing through the midst of them, he went his way. We find here Jesus returning to Nazareth to the very place where he had been brought up as a child. And he had at this point in his short life already been baptized by John in the Jordan River. And of course, you undoubtedly remember that scene. The father speaks from heaven as he comes out of the water saying, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. We're told that the spirit of God then descended upon him in the form of a dove, thus marking the beginning, the inauguration of his ministry here on earth. Following that event, we are told he came out from the Jordan and he was led by the Spirit into the wilderness where he was tempted for 40 days by the devil. Following his sound defeating of Satan and not succumbing to his various temptations, Mark and Luke both tell us that Jesus then made his way into the region of Galilee and Capernaum in power. And soon news of his fame began to spread. We've been looking at these very things for months now. And Mark, he had worked many miracles. He had healed many sick. He had worked wonders. And so news of his supernatural power had preceded him into the place where he was from, into Nazareth, his hometown. Now we are told Jesus makes his way to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. He goes into the synagogue where he had been known from his youth and he stands up to read the word of God as it's handed to him. And you can imagine there had to have been a considerable amount of tension of sorts in the air that day in the synagogue. Here he was. This great, Prophet, This prophet gaining fame by the day. This man who had grown up in their very midst. These people knew personally his mother, his father, his brothers, his sisters. They had known him as a child. And undoubtedly they heard of his miracles. How he had accomplished some pretty spectacular things in the sight of people who then spread news of him abroad they've heard of his teaching at this point. How he teaches as one with real weighty authority. Not simply as an uneducated son of a carpenter. But as one who exceeds even the scribes and the Pharisees themselves. In knowledge, wisdom, and authority. And here he was. Standing up in his hometown synagogue to speak, and as he stands to speak, he can really almost sense the anticipation. What's he going to say? Will he perform some of these miracles, so-called miracles here for us in front of our eyes? I mean, surely he will, right? This is his hometown after all. He will certainly want to do for us at least what he has done for others. So all eyes are riveted on Jesus as he stands up and he finds the place in Isaiah that he's looking for. It happens to be Isaiah 61 verses 1 and 2. And Jesus reads this, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor, he has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Upon finishing reading from Isaiah, with all eyes locked on Jesus, he rolls up the scroll and he says to the people of his hometown, today, This scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Can you even imagine how that had to have been perceived? Just like that, in a moment of time, this man whom they had known from the time of his childhood, from an ordinary family, perhaps even a family with a certain amount of scandal associated with them, whom had apparently shown some displays of mysterious power in these outlying regions of Capernaum, he stands up in this synagogue and he pronounces not just the good news, but truly the best news that fallen sinful man could ever dream of hearing. He is proclaiming that he The one standing before them is indeed the Messiah. The redeemer of God's people. The restorer of broken things. The very one promised by the prophet Isaiah. And of course the people are taken back. They're staggered by what he says. Luke says they all marveled at his words. And the merciful way in which he spoke. He was clearly one that had authority. His speech was such that it caused them to perk up and to pay attention. Luke says that they spoke of the gracious words that proceeded from his mouth. They were truly standing at a crossroads. Beloved, a crossroads that everyone stands at. They stood at the fork of faith and unbelief. Jesus has just announced that he truly was the Redeemer, the Messiah, the Son of God. And they listened for a moment. And then they looked around at one another and they said, hey, wait a minute. Isn't this Mary's son? Isn't this Joseph's son? Even though they marvel at the graciousness of his speech, they marvel at his manifest authority. They look at one another and they say, could this man possibly be who he just said that he was? Isn't this the son of insignificant Mary? Of insignificant Joseph? Did he just say that he came to preach the good news to the poor? To heal the brokenhearted, to set the captives free? Keep in mind that though these people were still at least gathering to read publicly the word of God in the synagogue. It's clear they were not paying very much attention to what was being said. We know that because of their expectation, right? They were not at all expecting a Messiah who in any way, shape or form resembled this man. whom they at least thought they were also familiar with. The Messiah that they wanted, the Messiah that they were expecting, even anticipating, was really a much different Messiah than the one who had been revealed through the Law and the Prophets. They were expecting a mighty warrior. One who would sort of just swoop in and free them from the tyranny of Rome. And establish them once again as a mighty, fearsome nation. One who would bring back the glory that they felt they so rightly deserved as the people of God. Might and terror, unrivaled strength. One who would send the nations cowering and fleeing in horror before Him. This is what they were waiting for. Because this is what they felt they needed. And so they ignored A clear presentation given to them in the prophets. And they decided that their Messiah would be exactly the way that they thought he should be. Beloved, I trust you can make the parallels. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? The sad truth is that they, like so many of us, were far too easily satisfied building up a model Messiah who was really so much less than the one promised to them by God and His Word. Expecting God to appeal to their whims and their fancies and their lusts, they awaited a warrior who would conquer men for a moment in time rather than a redeemer who would conquer sin, death, and the devil for eternity they had their own perceptions of what the christ should be and they would and what they would accept and even as the very promised one of god the culmination of the promise to abraham the culmination of all the promises of god stood physically in their midst they could not and they would not accept him as such and it's tragic isn't it they immediately looked down their noses at him in contempt and they said, no, 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 this one, that's Joseph's son. That's Mary's son. If only they knew, they might see that the Messiah of their own creation, as is always the case, was far, far less than what stood before them on that day. They wanted to be freed from the dominion of Rome. He came to free them from the dominion of, of sin and death. They wanted to be recreated as a new and powerful nation of men. He came to recreate them in the very image of the Son of God. Again, beloved, I think we can relate here, can't we? We too as Christians are at times far too easily satisfied. We prefer earthly strength to the one who speaks but a word to the creation and brings it into immediate subjection and obedience. We seek to be better in Adam, better than we were. He came to recreate us in his image. We seek to fix this world's little issues to make it a better place. He came. He came to undo the effects of the curse for eternity. Right? Well, Mark is full of these comparisons, isn't it? They thought that his target enemy would be the nation of Rome. He came to crush with his mighty arm an enemy that was far greater than Rome. He came to defeat sin and death and to deliver his people from all the power of Of the devil, to give them relief from the brokenness of this world because of sin. They thought he would come to free them from conquering nations, to set them free nationally and physically, to end their grief that resulted from their bondage. He came to heal the brokenhearted to take the one who through the power of, of the Spirit realized his own sin and his own miserable state and to set him free from the penalty and the bondage of sin for eternity. They were looking for a temporal king. But he came to reign over all of heaven and earth as the king eternal. They longed for a Messiah who would set up a temporary kingdom full of earthly power and might. He came to establish a spiritual kingdom ruling first and foremost their hearts and their minds and reigning for eternity. The things that they thought that they needed, that they had placed as being the very marks of the Messiah were just cheap little glimmers of the real power that, would, that they would have revealed to them in the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's more irony in Mark here, isn't it? Do you catch the irony? Do you see what's going on here? The marks of the Messiah were actually there. Jesus said that a prophet, namely himself, would be rejected in his hometown. And they were, of course, rejecting him. That itself was a mark of the Messiah. And it's a tragedy. What a contrast. And here he is standing in the synagogue of his youth proclaiming that the one whom Isaiah had prophesied about, the one that would be anointed with the very spirit of God to preach freedom to the captives, was here. It was him. The very word of God incarnate standing in their congregation. Can you imagine the tension? And then Jesus continues to speak. And the reaction of the people is very telling, isn't it? He looks at this crowd of familiar faces. He knows that they are anticipating some great miracle, some show of power, some magical work from him. They've heard of his miracles elsewhere. And he says, you will say to me, physician, heal yourself. Whatever we have heard you did in Capernaum, do here in your own country. And he says, assuredly, I say to you, no prophet is accepted in his own country. And he makes that truth sting and ring in their deaf ears. He points out to them that God could have sent the great prophet Elijah, that great prophet of Israel, to any number of widows in Israel during the great famine. But the fact is, he did not. Instead, God chose to send him to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon, an outsider, a foreigner. And Elisha, he could have cleansed any number of lepers who were Israelites. They were there. But Almighty God had him cleanse and heal only Naaman, who of course was nothing more than a despised and hated Syrian. And Jesus makes it abundantly clear in the hostile clutches of this crowd that there would in fact be no miracles here. Because these people's hearts were far from God. These people were struggling under the power of unbelief. And we see it again, don't we? The work of the gospel of Jesus Christ, doing separation, peace to one, condemnation to another. And the people become enraged, and Luke says they actually sought to kill him. He says they drove him outside of the city to a hill, all the way up to the brow of a cliff where their sole intent was to cast him from it and to end his blasphemous life. And then the people get their miracle. And another strange bit of irony, and they they don't even realize it's happening, in this terrifying scene of riotous chaos, this boiling over of self-righteous indignation, Jesus actually walks through the midst of this mob, And he goes on his way unmarked, unharmed, apparently even undetected. Well, we, we hear these narratives and we have to sort of stop and ask ourselves, what sparked this level of rage? What was it that Jesus said that could have been so difficult to hear that it motivated these people, these people who were so familiar with him, to desire to rise in murderous aggression and seek to end his life. What did he do? He told them the truth. He attacked their faithlessness and he tore down their idolatrous Messiah. He revealed the true Messiah to them, and in so doing, he wiped out their idolatrous replacement of him. And then I think he pointed to the one thing that all of the people in the synagogue did not want to think of, and that is to the absolute sovereignty of Almighty God. The natural man hates it. They had their own conception of God, and He fit their purposes on their terms. Because after all, He was their idol. Their conception of the purpose of the coming of the Messiah was not at all in line with the Scriptures, but it was something they could live with. And here comes this Jesus claiming to be God himself, not at all what they were looking for. And he has the audacity to stand in their synagogue and tell them that God will be God. And he will not act according to the fancies or whims of the people that lay claim to him. (laughs) Think of what Jesus said to them. He says, Elijah, you think there was a lack of widows in Israel? Do you believe God just happened to miss that fact and so he, he sent Elijah to a foreigner? Do you think that's what happened? It was your hearts. How about Elisha? Do you think there were no Israelite lepers in those days? Everything was just so good with the people of God that God had to bring in a Syrian for healing? God reads the hearts of men. He does what he does. He answers to no man. He has mercy upon whom he will have mercy and he condemns whom he will condemn because he is God. He's over all things. He is holy. He will not be the product of any man's whim or fancy. His knowledge is so far above ours that next to the knowledge of God, our best knowledge is nothing short of folly foolishness we possess these little glimmers these mere reflections of the of the perfections that exist in God and it is the height of foolishness the height of pride and folly to think that we can better judge what God will or what God ought to do but that is exactly what these people did in their unbelief they recreated a God to fit their own ideas, to be appealing to them based on what they perceived their real needs to be. And Jesus would have none of it. He knew their hearts and he exposed them for what they were. We really see it throughout his life, don't we? Constantly taking on the perceived religious ones, pointing out that they were trusting in something entirely of their own creation. That the sovereign God of the universe would not be recreated for them, but would in fact destroy their idols, destroy their false sense of security and peace, and ultimately judge and condemn the unrighteous to the fires of hell. So beloved, I tell you this morning, no doctrine in the Bible is more offensive to natural man, to who we are in Adam, than the absolute sovereignty of Almighty God. Let's consider for just a moment our modern church and its betrayal of Jesus Christ and why he came to this earth to save mankind. And I think we have to ask ourselves, are we guilty of the same thing as the people in the synagogue in Christ's day? Do we really need to recreate a God fitted and molded and made into our own image? Does a God made in our image ever produce anything even remotely close to real peace and real joy and real comfort? Can peace truly be attained in this life through our own plan, through our handling the Word of God, changing the Word of God, making it more friendly, more palatable, more relevant to the people that are all around us? Or does it still just serve as a smokescreen? Veiling the revealed Christ. Giving us a perception of peace and joy that simply will never measure up to the real thing. Hiding the fact that we still cling desperately to our own autonomy. Hiding our rebellion by masking it as piety. There's a warning here for us, isn't there? Will we so convince ourselves of an idol that when we are finally confronted with the truth of the word of God, we are thrown into a blind rage, clinging to our rights and our perceptions, unwilling to let them go, clinging to our traditions, unwilling to ever submit to a God who would dare to make demands of us. Beloved, I I hope that this parallel hits home. Because I want to tell you this morning, this is what is going on when we seek to remake Jesus Christ in our own image. The word of God is powerful. And it needs no help from us to convince anyone of who Jesus truly is. Jesus Christ has revealed himself in glory through the gospel and to the children of God. To those who have been given God-given faith, He needs no touching up. He is all glorious light to the captives of utter darkness. He is glorious freedom to those wearing the shackles of the bondage of sin. He is the only hope of the desperate ones. Have you seen that coming across here, Mark? The desperate ones run to him and fall at his feet because they know that he is everything they need. When slaves of sin see their liberator, the last thing that they want to do is veil his glory by bringing him down to their own level. Beloved, do you understand? We are not the light. We are called to be reflectors of his light, despite our own incredible darkness. We're not called to recreate a more glorious light that is, in fact, no light at all. Jesus Christ came in power to set the captives free and set them free. He did. He came. He lived blameless under the law. He willingly went to the cross. He received the wrath of God poured out upon Him in our place. He died. He rose again the third day. He ascended to the right hand of the Father. And when we see Him, as He's revealed to us in His Word, we are removed from the realm of sin and death and we are placed into His life by faith for eternity. It is impossible to taste of His wonderful freedom and remain unaffected by it. We do have something to be filled with joy and peace about precisely because Jesus Christ came to divide. To set apart His sheep from the goats, to gather the fruit-producing wheat into the storehouse of heaven, and to burn the weeds who are content merely in this life to masquerade as wheat. Jesus is not some morality guru who seeks to make sure that at the end of the day we can all, the whole world, just somehow get along. That's humanism. He is the Messiah, the Son of God, the Prince of Peace, the King of Kings the great shepherd who came to call his sheep and to equip them to be carried home in his loving arms to their glorious freedom. And that should make you want to sing this morning. He does it on his terms, even to the exclusion of some. Are you a recipient of his grace? Beloved, listen, it is offensive to those who are outside of the household of faith, to those who remain blinded in their unbelief. Mark says they took offense at him. He did not come to bring peace to the world, but a sword. He came not to make a friendly network of fake, pretty people who all looked the look. He came to overthrow the power of Satan. He came to undo the curse because of sin. He came to set his people free by walking into the very wrath of God on our behalf. Into the face of adversity and death itself to deliver his people. And I ask you, beloved, who in their right mind could ever want any other representation of their Savior than this one? What more could you want? What could be more gracious than this? Can you make the gospel more glorious? Of course not. My question is, do you know this Christ? Beloved, if you do, then you ought to worship your liberator liberator, like a freed captive to the glory of Almighty God. Not just today. Indeed, every day of your life. Do you know this Jesus revealed to you in the word of God by grace? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're so grateful for your word this morning. We're grateful for the good news of the gospel and pray that we would never tire of hearing it. Pray, Father, We, we I pray that it would be at the center of everything that we do, of everything that we are as your people. May we never sway from the revelation that you give us of Christ in your word clinging to him by faith faith which you graciously give may we live more and more for your glory during our pilgrimage on this earth and we ask it in jesus name amen would you please stand and join me this morning in praying our lord's prayer and jesus taught his disciples to pray our father who art in heaven